I'm going to start by reading the whole of the first uh, discourse that the Buddha gave in the Deer Park, and then we'll go through it, or at least through bits of it. It's called uh, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the discourse on turning the wheel of the Dhamma. I read the first part already yesterday, but we'll go over that again. This is what I heard. He was dwelling at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. He addressed the group of five monks. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Indulgence in sense pleasure, which is low, vulgar, ordinary, uncivilized and meaningless. And indulgence in self-mortification or self-abuse, which is painful, uncivilized and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to either of these dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release. It has eight branches. True seeing, true thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness and concentration. This is the ennobling truth of anguish. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are painful. This is the ennobling truth of the origin of anguish, the craving that leads to repeated existence, given over to delight and desire, keenly indulging in this and that. That is, craving for stimulation, Craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is the ennobling truth of the cessation of anguish. The traceless fading away and cessation of that craving. The letting go and abandoning of it. Freedom and independence from it. And this is the ennobling truth of the path that leads to the cessation of anguish, the path with eight branches, true seeing, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness and concentration. Such is anguish or suffering. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is the origin of anguish. It can be relinquished. It has been relinquished. Such is the cessation of anguish. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. And such is the path that leads to cessation. It can be created or cultivated. It has been created. And so there arose in me vision awareness, intelligence, knowledge and illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear in all these ways about the reality of the four truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all of these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. 
This is the last birth. There is no more repeated existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five monks delighted in his words. And while this discourse was being spoken, the dispassionate, stainless Dhamma eye arose in the venerable Kondanya, who said, whatever originates is something that ceases. Now, this is um, clearly, I think, not a, a verbatim transcript of what happened as soon as the Buddha got to the park and said his thing. This has the, um, uh, the clear feel of a text that has been worked and reworked and reworked and reworked. Um, superficially, it sounds quite simple, perhaps, but like many classical texts, the more you live with it, the more you sort of burrow inside its meaning, the more you pick it apart, the more you tease out the implication of each word and each phrase, the more you keep discovering. That's what's strange about it. And this is a, a text, uh, or at least the core ideas of this text, are things that I've been puzzling over for more than 30 years, and I keep finding more stuff. It's rather curious. The text breaks down quite clearly into four parts. The first part we looked at yesterday, where the Buddha starts by announcing, as it were, uh, this path that he has discovered. That's the initial declaration. I found a path, a way, a middle way, one that doesn't get bogged down in dead ends. The next part of the text seems almost to jump to another point altogether where he just announces, this is the noble truth of suffering, or as I've translated it, this is the ennobling truth of anguish. And then he goes through the four truths. And the fourth truth is, of course, the middle path itself. So in other words, he comes back to where he started. He starts with the middle path. Then he recites the four truths, the fourth of which is the middle path. So in other words, he steps back, having declared the existence of such a path, and then he, he presents the steps that you need to take in order to enter that path. And this is how I would understand the four truths. The four truths are essentially four uh, steps or four stages. They're four parts of a, of a process that culminates in entering the path. That's the second part of the text. The third part of the text, which is arguably, from a practice point of view, the most important, is that he then tells us how to deal with each truth. He's not saying, these are the Four Noble Truths, and if you, want to, if you believe in them, then you can be a follower of me, and later people will call themselves Buddhists if they believe those things. He doesn't say that at all. Uh, he's not presenting, as it were, four dogmatic propositions. He's presenting, and this is very clear in the third part of this text, he's presenting four things to do, four, four actions that need somehow to be, to be done, to be accomplished, before one can say that one has internalized or realized these truths and this path. So each truth has a specific injunction attached to it. The first truth, that of anguish or, or, or dukkha, suffering, is to be fully known. 
The second truth, craving, is to be let go of, relinquished. The third truth, cessation, and as the Buddha says here, although he says cessation of suffering, when he defines it, it's quite clear. He says that is the cessation of craving. And that is something to be experienced for yourself. The Pali word um, literally means something to be seen with your own eyes. In other words, it's not a belief, it's not some doctrine that you ascribe to, but rather it is an experience that you have for yourself intimately. And the fourth truth, that of the path, is something to be created, something to be cultivated. The word bhavana can be translated in both those ways. And the fourth part of the text is his um, declaration of what in fact his awakening consisted of. And he's very, very clear. There's all of this discussion about enlightenment or awakening and what does it mean? And is it the same for all sages and enlightened people the world over or not? And usually we think of enlightenment or awakening as some kind of state. You either have it or you don't have it. One listens nowadays to fervent discussions amongst meditators and Buddhists about whether a particular teacher is enlightened or not. As though it's simply a quality that you can have or you can not have a state of some kind. But here the Buddha makes it abundantly clear uh, that his awakening was not an insight, a shattering insight into some ultimate or transcendent truth, but rather his awakening constituted a complex relationship with four specific truths. Now this is very characteristic of of, of the Buddha's approach. He tends not to move towards simplicity, one truth or one insight or one state that defines who he is, but rather he moves towards complexity. The one truth becomes four truths. When he talks of the human person, he doesn't speak in simple terms of, say, body and mind. He speaks of five aggregates, the physical, the emotional, the perceptual, the volitional, the conscious. And when he looks further into the five aggregates, they break down into the 12 elements or the 18 sense spheres. That the Buddha seems to be deliberately um, resisting the temptation to reduce everything to some sort of final ultimate reality or to reduce human experience to body and mind. And instead he keeps opening up the world, opening up experience. We saw yesterday how he thinks of our primary datum of our experience as this interdependence between consciousness and name and form, one giving rise to the other. When you go into name and form, that breaks down into numerous um, aspects and divisions. That wherever you go, wherever the Buddha takes you, you, you tend to come into more complexity and diversity and detail. And all of this, I think, is entirely in keeping with his idea of uh, idda pachayata, the this conditioned, conditioned arising. In other words, he's concerned with turning our attention towards the complexity of life, the the specificity of each particular situation, 
to become more attuned to the peculiar quality of each sense door. Even when he talks about the path to enlightenment, very often he uses this expression, the, uh, the 37 limbs of enlightenment, the bodhijanga. He doesn't say there is one path, but he says there are 37 aspects to this practice. It's a lot. When he talks about mindfulness, it's not as though mindfulness is just some kind of given state, but rather there are four groundings of mindfulness, depending on whether it is of the body, of the feelings, of mental states, of phenomena. So when he comes to talk about his awakening, it's likewise not spoken of as an awakening to ultimate reality, insight into God, uh, a vision of emptiness. None of this language is used here. The word unconditioned, for example, is also not used. But instead he says, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear in all these ways, and by that he means having fully known suffering, having let go of craving, having experienced stopping, having created a path. I did not claim to have had, sorry, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear in all these ways about the four truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. So the awakening... Um, entails the relationship he has with these four principles of suffering, of craving, of cessation, and the path. It's not reducible to any one of them. It entails all of them. And it's quite clearly, if we see it in this way, not a state at all. It's... um, what we would probably nowadays call a process. And the whole idea of entering a stream, again, a stream is a living thing. A stream is a flow of water in a landscape. A path is not something static, but it's something that needs to be created and opened up in each moment. What the Buddha seems to be describing is far more a way of life, a way of being in this world, in all aspects of our lives, each moment, and doing so from within this new perspective that he's opening up. So the awakened person is the one who most optimally realizes that way of life, who lives it out, who expresses it, who is true to it, who has somehow integrated it into their actions, into their thoughts, into their deeds, into their words. The awakened person is not someone who's had some privileged mystical experience and somehow stands apart, in a way, from the vicissitudes of life and pronounces from his or her superior wisdom. But rather this awakening is a relationship we enter into with the world and with others constantly. So let's now um, look at this in terms of what the practice of these four truths um, is really about. And we can reduce this to four simple slogans which again sort of contradicts what I just said, but anyway, for, as a rule of thumb. Um, and these would be, or four injunctions, let's say. Embrace suffering is the first injunction. Embrace suffering. The second injunction is let go of craving or let go of grasping. The third injunction is experience stopping and the fourth injunction is create a path now 
the, what I found very useful in thinking of the four truths in terms of these four actions or these four injunctions is that it allows us to see why these four truths are presented in the sequence that they are. Suffering, craving, cessation, and a path. When you realize that each of these is something to do, you can see how each of those actions organically and seamlessly leads to the next action. The more that you embrace suffering, the more grasping and craving will fall away. The more that grasping and craving fall away, the closer you come to a genuine stopping of grasping and craving, or moments of stopping, in which these things are no longer driving you. And when you've experienced that stopping of those habits, of those drives, that opens up the possibility in that space of creating a path. Now, what I'd like to do is go into that in, in much more detail now and to try to see how that actually works, let's say, in the context of a retreat such as this. How do we, do we actually perform those tasks that the Buddha's inviting us to, to do? Another point that perhaps I should make before going into that is that if we go back to the description the Buddha has of his awakening beneath the tree, remember that his, the ground that he, um, he, 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 he experiences, he calls conditioned arising, which he then later defines as when this is, that comes to be. In, in the passage we, we looked at then, a couple of days ago, dependent arising or conditioned arising contingency is still very much just a principle. It's an idea. What he does in the first sermon, the first discourse, is he translates that principle of contingency, conditionality, into a practice. He makes it into a way of life, initially with his idea of a path, and then in the next step, his description of how one arrives at such a path. And in each case, you can see how it's it's an illustration of the principle, when this is, that comes to be. If it's the path, then when there is true vision that gives rise to what he calls true thinking. When there is true thinking, that gives rise to true speech, to action and so on. So you can see that the path is structured along a sequence of um, moments, of experiences, one giving rise or supporting the emergence of the next. And the same is true with the four truths. When you if you follow the principle when this is, that comes to be, when you fully embrace suffering, then what will come to be? The falling away of craving. When the falling away of craving exists, then what will come to be? The stopping of craving. And when that happens, what comes to be? The creating of a path. So you can see how this principle of contingency or conditionality or cause and effect is something that runs right through what he's presenting. And at no time is there any appeal to some kind of non-conditional or transcendent element, whether you call it consciousness or or God or uh, pure spirit or whatever it might be, All of this teaching is taking place 
and is entirely intelligible within um, the way in which we observe and understand and relate to the phenomenal world, the world of appearances, the world of what that is present to us through our eyes, our ears, our minds. We don't need to somehow step outside of that and gain access to a privileged uh, transcendent reality. This, I feel, is what is very much the, the sense or the direction, the thrust of what the Buddha is doing that is really so radical in his own time and I think in many respects in our own time, especially regarding what we consider to be the practice of religion. So let's go back to this idea of um, dukkha parinya in Pali, which means fully know dukkha. Embrace suffering, fully know. What does it mean to say that you fully know dukkha? You fully know it. Of course, we know it. We know perfectly well that aging is painful, for example, and sickness is painful, and birth is painful. We can tick them all off. Oh, yes, I know that one. I know, mm, yeah, I've got that one. Next. Right, I know the whole lot. But, of course, it makes not an iota of difference. You can know all these things without really knowing them at all. And this is, I think, where uh, what is uh, characteristic of the Dharma as a practice comes into play because simply to know things, to have some doctrinal expertise, to be well-versed in the tradition and the texts may not have any impact at all on how you actually encounter life from moment to moment. So what is um, uh, essential here, and this is a, one of the reasons, perhaps the main reason why Martina and I like to teach these texts in the context of a retreat, is because these ideas are things that we do. And so the idea of fully knowing dukkha or embracing suffering, is something that we do when we sit here. In many respects, I feel that this embracing suffering is the common denominator of pretty much all Buddhist practice. And again, it's terribly counterintuitive. The Buddha seems to be saying, well, you want to be happy? Okay, embrace suffering. That doesn't seem on the surface to make much sense. Surely we would say, if I want to be happy, the last thing I need to deal with is suffering. I need to get away from all of that. And if we look at our own lives, or I should say it, as I look at my own behavior, I find a great deal of my time is spent either worrying about or avoiding any possible pain or discomfort or hassle or conflict. I hate conflict. <laughs> Do anything to get out of conflict. <laughs> Run a mile from conflict. Compromise myself endlessly in order not to have to deal with conflict. And yet the Buddha seems to be saying the very opposite. He's saying, go, go, go into it. I remember when I was probably about 16 or 17 years old, I saw um, on our family's old black-and-white television set, uh, a brief interview with Alan Watts. I think it must have been Alan Watts. And um, he was saying, um, it's like when you, you go to the ocean and there's a great big wave coming at you. And the instinct is to shy away from the wave, but of course that's what actually makes it all the more devastating when it crashes because it knocks you flat into the sand. It's terribly painful. But if you could just face the wave and dive into that wall of water, weirdly then there is no wave. That you, 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 it, it's by, by going into 
the experience by seeing it for what it is, by relating to it in what initially feels like a kind of counterintuitive thing to do, to go into the wave, into the breaker. And I think it's somewhat similar here. I was obviously very struck by that comment. But I think it's similar here. Suffering is something like a great big breaking wave that we recoil from and run from. And of course, in the end, it just smashes us flat on the sand. Now, the counterintuitive approach of the Buddha is to go into the suffering, is to, is to face it. And of course, we do that when we're sitting here on our cushions uh, when we're walking around, um, we are trying uh, uh, as best we can to stay present to what is happening. And what is always, I think, interesting to ask ourselves is why do we resist that? Why, when we're sitting here doing something as harmless as watching the breath, we have all of our basic needs taken care of. Why does the mind compulsively want to do something else? Why is it so difficult just to remain still? I mean, this is also a point made in, in many traditions. There's a famous statement of, of Pascal, who says that the, 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 the source of, 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 of all human misery is our inability to sit quietly in a room, which is basically what we're doing here. It's very difficult just to stop and pay attention to um, what is happening. The sensations in the body, the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, the sounds outside... When it's, a, when it's still a novelty, yes, oh, this is rather interesting. But once the novelty wears off, the mind gets bored. And I think sometimes worse than bored, I think we become rather, rather unsettled by this whole business. Same with silence. Silence can be terribly unsettling. We've somehow been deprived of a, a very habitual uh, avenue to avoid the something, to avoid some pain or some discomfort, start talking, pick up the phone, send an email. So this practice of satipatthana, this practice of grounding attention is really, in the framework of the four truths, it's the practice of embracing suffering. Now, particularly, I think... <clears throat> when we're working with, um, <clears throat> let's say, an anxiety or a worry or some uh, slightly depressing thought, look what happens, look what you do habitually. You seek, I suggest, some way out of having to really be with that, whether it be a daydream or a fantasy or you get drowsy and you nod off we go and have a cup of tea, whatever it might be. But I think it's useful in during this sort of uh, retreat situation um, to really challenge that habit to run away and rather just say, okay, this is what's happening right now and try to stabilize your attention so that whatever occurs you can rest within a certain kind of equanimity, a certain kind of, of fundamental honesty with yourself, with your situation. You don't... The, 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 there's no need to make a story out of it, to justify it, to rationalize it. Just come back to the basis of your existence, the ground, the tana the Buddha speaks of, of what is arising and passing away and happening now. So to fully know dukkha is to fully encounter the 
the complexity of this fluid, transient, poignant, and in some senses tragic condition in which we are in. Tragic because it's going to end. It's going to stop one day. And that day could be at any time, any moment. And there's something deeply poignant about that. That when um, Buddhist uh, uh, thinkers came to try to define what this first truth meant, the truth of dukkha, they recognized that it wasn't just to do with overt sensations of suffering and pain. And this is one of the real problems I think we have in, uh, in, in communicating why Buddhism emphasizes suffering. The word dukkha doesn't really translate into English. Um, it, in, 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 it implies not just overt sensations of pain, but it also implies the impermanence of life, the transiency of life, particularly that aspect. When I was a monk in the Tibetan tradition, one of the practices that I found the most valuable, which we were encouraged to do every day, was um, a reflection on death. You know, to systematically sit down and, and reflect on the fact that death is the only thing that's certain. The, 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 my life coming to an end is the only thing that I can look forward to with any certainty at all. Everything else is uncertain. Everything else that I could plan for or hope for or dream of may or may not happen. With one exception, and that is that one day I will die. And then we'd, be, we'd take that reflection further by thinking... De the time of death is totally uncertain. And by thinking about it, by reflecting about it repeatedly in a, in a quiet, reflective way, slowly begins to make those ideas more real. In other words, you begin to sense, you begin to feel your mortality. It's not just an idea anymore. It becomes something almost palpable almost physical in a way. And the strange thing is that as you go into this reflection, it doesn't make you gloomy and pessimistic and morbid, but rather it makes you that much more sensitized and awake to the fact that you're alive. You see, I think the denial of death which is a very widespread human um, activity, is also a denial of life. I think when we try to banish death from our thoughts, from our, from our lives, from our vision, we're at the same time denying something about our, the very heart of our life. The, the, the life is inescapably a constant movement towards its own end. It's not something we can cling on to and hold on to and preserve as much as we would like to. In doing so, we actually uh, shut ourselves down. We actually put another block, another dead end into the system. And we feel secure superficially because we've somehow attached ourselves to some identity, to some place, to some position. Again, going back to what the Buddha said, that people cannot see their ground because of their attachment to their place and their position. So in other words, um, to have these rather fixed, slightly conceited views of one's own importance, of one's own existence, actually denies something crucial to human life, and that is its impermanence, its transience, its slipping away nature. So by reflecting on death, or as we would do here, simply noticing and paying attention to the 
the characteristic of impermanence. I mean, vipassana is not about watching your breath. Vipassana only begins when you start to notice that your breath is changing and that it's coming and it's going and it's highly vulnerable, it's highly fragile. It's there one moment, it's gone the next. It's this uh, heightening of one's awareness to the, uh, the, the transience of things paying attention to the fact that life is so often shot through with discomfort or anxiety, uncertainty, paying attention to how everything is conditional and contingent. The reason, in a way, that there is dukkha and that there is impermanence is because the world is a highly contingent thing. Everything has arisen out of a myriad causes which we cannot conceivably hope to fully understand. And it's constantly changing and it's constantly vanishing and one day we will vanish too. A contingent world is a living world, it's a vital world, but it's also one in which there is just no room for permanent happiness, which is of course at some level what we most deeply crave understandably. So here the Buddha's turning our attention away from those unrealistic and unrealizable longings for permanence, for eternity, and focusing our attention on coming to terms with change, with contingency, with suffering and with pain. Now of course, as we pursue this a process of embracing dukkha, it cannot just remain the dukkha within my own particular body or my own life. To fully know dukkha, we realize that dukkha is everywhere, that all people, all forms of life, are likewise subject to impermanence and death and sickness and aging. And so as we open our minds to attend to dukkha, we also begin to open our hearts to the suffering of the world. And I think it's in this uh, regard that from the very outset, the practice is opening us to the possibilities of, of wisdom and compassion. You don't have to wait till you're enlightened to be compassionate. And perhaps you don't need to sort of spend a lot of time cranking up all sorts of compassionate motives. If you start simply by paying attention to suffering, dukkha, in this total way, that will engage both your intelligence as well as your affective nature, your feelings, your emotions. And we have, therefore, from the very outset, um, an integration of wisdom and compassion. So I think compassion or love um, are founded, in the first instance, on empathy, on the capacity to feel what the other person feels imaginatively to be um, attuned to what is going on in the world, not cut off, sensitized. And that can be terribly painful. It's not easy. Now, what happens as a, as a consequence of um, attending to ourselves and our world in this way is that it begins to question, it begins to put into question many of the underlying attitudes that we have regarding what I want and what I don't want. We start to notice how so much of our, um, of our behavior, our mental behavior, is very much about getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't like. 
trying, in other words, to control and manipulate one's environment, one's situation, one's workplace, one's home life, in such a way that it maximizes one's own well-being. You might have noticed this. Now, of course, at some practical levels, that's you know, entirely reasonable. That's how we get by in life. But the problem is that we often have a much greater investment in that strategy. At some level, we have this fantasy that if only X didn't happen, if only Y did not work in the office, if only my son could get his act together, if only I didn't have this pain in my lower back, then I'd be happy. Now, of course, it's, we know things are not that simple, but just pay attention sometimes to your own inner longings. And very often, those longings are articulated in the language of, if only X, then Y. If only I could get rid of this. If only I had that, then I'd be okay. In other words, we make our lives somehow conditional upon the fulfillment of a certain longing or desire, and yet let's imagine that longing is fulfilled, which it is, of course, sometimes, and we're really happy. It's brilliant. Yeah, we go. This is great. But then, of course, once that wears off and you get used to the new situation, you're back to where you started as a rule. And then something else irritates you or nags away or you get, you know, you, you pick up some virus or something. Whatever it is. And then we start again. Well, if only we didn't have X. And so this is really, I think, um, uh, craving in action. Craving in action, what the Buddha calls keenly indulging in this and that. The craving for stimulation, the craving for existence. And then he says the craving for non-existence. I mean, he's closing off all doors. You won't solve this situation by killing yourself. That just brings everything to a dead end and who knows, maybe worse. Somehow we need to find a way not to be driven by and beholden to these longings and cravings and desires. And so the injunction reads, let go of craving. But that, of course, is not something you can just decide to do one day. I, can, I could say here, for example, okay, on the, I'm going to count to three. <laughs> and on the, on, well, as soon as I've said three, then we're going to stop craving. Stop being egotistical. Stop, having, stop being afraid. That these things are not self, as the texts say. They're not within our volitional command or control. However much we want, might want to do that, we can't instruct ourselves to do it and achieve it as an act of will. So going back, so what can you do? Well, going back to the principle of when this exists, that arises, you work on the causes, on the conditions. And the cause and the condition for letting go of craving is fully knowing dukkha. If you really are attuned and, in a sense, almost at one with this experience of life, as impermanent, as dukkha, as selfless, that that itself will lead to a natural dropping away of grasping and clinging and clutching because you now know, deep down, that no matter how many things you cling on to and get rid of, it's not, at the end of the day, going to make the kind of difference that you most deeply are longing for. It's not, it doesn't work, basically. The, the craving and desire and hatred and fear um, simply don't produce what they 
seem to imply that they can. They just keep on repeating themselves. And that's called sangsara, going round and round and round and round and round. So to break out of that circle, we need somehow to undermine the very rationale of craving. And that, I feel, is achieved by radically transforming our relationship to suffering. The suffering of ourselves, the suffering of others. So that our lives become much more about responding to that foundational experience of life, changing and so on, rather than trying to achieve some kind of quasi-permanence by getting this or getting rid of that. And again, this is not something that you need to simply take on trust because it's in some Buddhist text. You need to see whether that actually has any truth to it or not. Does that work? Is that true? So in other words, it's the Buddha called his, his Dhamma, he said it's ehipasiko, something you come and check out. Come and, it says, come and have a look. Come and check this out. See if it works. And in that sense, the Buddha's a pragmatist. He's concerned with what will actually make a difference to the quality of human life. But of course, that requires a fair amount of work in each human person. There's no blessing that someone can grant you. You, you have to do this work yourself. And from here it's fairly um, straightforward how the process then continues. Once this craving ceases to be so potent, it ceases to be such a, an insistent urge that you can't resist, it begins to fade away. Or if it doesn't fade away, it becomes something that you're no longer tricked by it might arise but you just say oh well here we go again in other words um, you don't have to buy into it and this of course is what we do when we sit is we notice for example a, an anxiety or a desire or a fantasy just beginning to bubble up to the surface of consciousness and we have a choice. We can either go with it or we can just notice it. We can just observe what's going on without getting involved in it, without letting it take us away. But of course, so often, despite our best intentions, we only notice these drives and fantasies and urges when they've already got hold of us. And then it's much more difficult to deal with them. They've kind of already um, infiltrated into our system, our body-mind system. So as this uh, craving, the second truth, begins to somehow drop away, that opens up more and more possibility for, um, for seeing things, for experiencing our life, um, uncontrolled, undriven by greed and hatred. And this is the experience of what becomes called Nibbana, Nirvana. Nirvana is simply that very vivid experience that may only last for a few moments in which you know for yourself now, not because somebody's told you, that you can live in this world unconditioned by those drives. You're free in some way at that point. That doesn't mean that they will go away forever, but rather that you've found a way of being with them without being of them. That is the experience of Nibbana, or the experience of the deathless, as it's sometimes called. And again, those are terms the Buddha borrows from the Upanishads. 
But what he means here is something that you experience for yourself. It's a moment of freedom, of peace, of a deep calm, of clarity. And that calm and that clarity then opens up the possibility of another way of life. And so the, uh, this experience of, of stopping becomes the precondition for what is called samaditi, usually translated as right view. And again, when you look at the definitions of right view, what do the texts say? Well, very often they say that right view is the full understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So again, it's kind of holomorphic. That one moment in the process, that of samaditi, of seeing things truly, is actually seeing the whole picture of this process in which you are involved. And that then leads to another way of thinking, of speaking, of acting, of working, and so on. Now the Buddha says um, in many passages that the person who has, has, has achieved this stopping and then this experience of, of the world in this new way has become independent of the opinions of others. That such a person achieves at that moment a kind of autonomy and integrity. It's no longer necessary to, to cite what some other authority figure like the Buddha has told you. You now know this for yourself. You are now somehow a free agent. You're no longer a believer, but you're someone who intuitively has grasped the significance of this process. And that then leads into the process of the path itself, the Eightfold Path, which the Buddha again makes clear is not something that will open up for you like the yellow brick road and you just have to sort of stroll along it. But it is also a task. A path is not something just laid out. And here's, this is where the meta, meta, metaphor, in a sense, fails. But a path is something that you have to work at you have to keep opening it up. A path is essentially a gap. It's a, it's a space, an unencumbered space, that allows you to move without impediment. That's what a path really is. It's not a, a pavement or a, something running across a field. But rather, it is an opening you can get into your stride. You're not obstructed by anything now. Your life can begin to flow, which is, of course, why the Buddha describes it as a stream. It's moving constantly, as life does. And then this path, too, it's not as though you get to step seven and step eight and then you kind of stop. It's not a linear process in that way at all, but rather... As you uh, cultivate this path, let's say you cultivate mindfulness, you cultivate concentration, which are very much the, 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 the technically at the end of the path, the steps seven and eight. But what do you focus your mindfulness on? What do you concentrate upon? And that, of course, brings you back to the beginning. You are mindful of dukkha of the world, of contingency, of impermanence. That's what you focus on. And so you come back once more to the beginning. And so each, um, what, what, I mean, given the limitations of language, what seems to be being described here is a kind of a, a feedback process in which you're constantly renewing your whole um, experience of what this process is about you keep coming back to impermanence but at a slightly different pitch perhaps at, with a slightly more depth with more, more complexity and so at any given moment 
you are engaging with all of these aspects of the four truths. And you set in motion, as it were, um, a way of life, a way of, of living in the world as it unfolds unpredictably, uncertainly, but also very miraculously um, in each moment that we're alive. 